Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can say a lot of things about this church, but you can't say we don't have talented musicians. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Man, a little sax solo a la 1980s. 1990s, where is, where did Johan go? That was hot. Jerry was up here jamming, I saw him, you saw it. Man, what a blessing, we have really good musicians. It's amazing, you heard that, you worship God, and you did so not sitting in a pew. A lot of people said, this doesn't feel like church. Church is a pew? No, church is the body of God's people. And whether we're in a gymnasium, whether we're sitting in a secretive closet in China, or whether we're sitting on very comfortable chairs in Miami, Florida, that's the church. Good morning. Happy New Year. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. 1 through 4. Hold your place there if you would. I want to say thank you to everyone who helped out this past week. With the chairs, we had 51 towering 10-chair towers that we had to cut open, and we had them all lined up over here. I thought that I was going to leave them all lined up, so just one side as close as we could to really increase fellowship, but David told me, no, we need a little bit more leg room. So we spent Friday moving the chairs around, and a lot of the young people from the school helped out. Thank you so much. We appreciate everything, and we appreciate those who are continuing to give uh, in abundance of their tithe, we appreciate that so much. We're so grateful to have this. In John chapter 12, 41 through 43, 42 through 43, John said this. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, that is Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John is tying the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a sinister motivation, which is to love man's glory more than God's glory. In Jesus' day, religion reigned. Everyone, including the state, including Rome itself, endorsed some form of religion. But in our day, secularism reigns supreme. Secularism is the belief in no religion, no gods. More properly, secular humanism reigns. That is the belief that since there is no God, man is the God of his own destiny. That is the religion of our day. And it has replaced the antiquated religions of the world. If John were living in today's day and age, perhaps his words would have been slightly different. 
had they been written about our generation, perhaps it would have sounded something like this. Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of political incorrectness, they did not confess it, so that they would not lose their jobs, their scholarships, their grades, or their relationships with friends and loved ones. For they loved the acceptance that comes from man more than the acceptance that comes from God. You all know the rule of success in this country, or at least the way to not get success. If you want to get and keep a job, you want to sell your product, if you want to get that promotion or pass the class or be accepted in various social clubs, you don't talk about Jesus. He is the name of great offense. You can talk about God. God is defined in the Christian world through the lens of Jesus. In the past, God revealed himself through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. For us, the name of Jesus is the name above all names. God is not an offensive term, but the name Jesus is. So we play the game. Because we know that if we don't, we're going to be ostracized from the group. Ultimately, we want man's acceptance above all else. But the Bible tells us that God controls both the keys to our getting ahead as well as our heading to heaven. The question, though, is do we really believe this? I want to ask you this question this morning. Whose rewards are you really seeking? Let's pray. Lord God, in you and your son, we have all things. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags before the cross and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our debt is paid in full. We now wait eagerly for the hope of the salvation of our bodies, the glorification of our bodies, the renewal of this earth. You have given to us all things and we've done nothing to earn it because we were dead in trespasses and sin. You made us alive in Christ Jesus, not because we earned it, but by grace, not because we worked it, but by through faith. There is no boasting for our religion. Jesus, for those who are in you right now, we have everything we will ever need. Lord, we know, though, as a sacrifice, we're going to lose the approval of men. Lord, create in us a heart that desires you above the approval of men, that desires the righteousness that comes by faith, by grace through faith, and not the self-righteousness of the praise of men. Lord, I pray that you would create that heart in us this morning. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen. In Matthew 6, 1 through 4, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Matthew 6, 1 and 4. 
Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. John Stott reminds us that according to Jesus, Christian righteousness has two dimensions, moral and religious. Jesus switched it this way. The law that fulfills all other laws is this. Love the Lord your God with all mind, body, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In those two laws of love, two dimensions, our moral, our social, and our religious righteousness is fulfilled. Jesus warned us in Matthew 5.20 that unless our righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, we would never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the moral sphere, we saw that the Pharisees took God's law for granted And they assumed that the external works were enough and that no heartfelt love for God's righteous laws was necessary. They taught that murder was wrong, but anger was permissible. That adultery was only what one did physically with their body and with another person and not what a person did psychologically in their own minds and in their hearts. The Pharisees taught that the union of marriage could be dissolved by the husband if he found anything, literally anything, unpleasing in her. They used deceptive ways of swearing oaths so as to not have to keep their promises rather than meaning exactly what they said. They taught that one must love their neighbor, but that hating one's enemies was just fine. But Jesus taught a righteousness, a moral righteousness that goes beyond the externals and focuses on the internals, the motivation of the heart. It is because our religion to God is something that only God really sees. The truest form of our religion is only something that God really sees. The righteousness then that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is not quantitatively more good works, but it is qualitatively different types of works. It's not more and more than what they were doing. Pharisees kept strict codes. They added on to the law. If God required fasting once a year, the Pharisees would do it twice a week. They had a lot. But they didn't have the right kind. 
It's not an issue of quantity. It is an issue of quality. A righteousness of a new kind. A righteousness that comes from the heart. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus focuses in on our religious righteousness. We must not assume that religious righteousness is the only righteousness that we practice before God, since God's total law is summed up in our love for Him and our love for others. In other words, the righteousness that God requires includes both our love for Him and our love for others. So we move on into chapter 6. And Jesus is going to focus on three aspects of our religious righteousness before God. In our verse today, Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4, we are going to look at the topic of almsgiving. It was customary in Jesus' day to view religious devotion to God in terms of a threefold pattern of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. If you have your Bibles, you can look and you see that chapter 6... Up until do not be anxious and even do not be anxious includes giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Tobit, a second century intertestamental book, that means it was a non-canonical book, Tobit. It's in the Revised Standard Version or New American Standard Version. It's also part of the 1611 King James Version. But these are not considered biblical books. But they are still valuable. These are the apocryphal books, and Tobit is one of them. They are considered to be very valuable for our understanding of the worldview that really helped to shape Jesus' worldview in the first century. And so we see that roughly 200 years before Jesus came to earth, the way that Jews viewed true religion to God. And so Tobit groups these three religious works of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting together in this way. Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. Perhaps that's why the Lord began His explanation of religious righteousness with almsgiving, to give it preeminence. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold, For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life, but those who commit sin and do wrong are their own worst enemies. So as Jesus begins our passage in 6, 1 through 4, he doesn't demand or command his people to give alms. He expects that that's what they're going to do because this is the custom of his day. That true religion is an almsgiving, sacrificial giving of your monetary blessings and your surplus, praying to God and fasting. That is true religious righteousness. So Jesus doesn't command almsgiving or prayer and fasting. He just assumes that this will be the religious practice of his people going forward. But just as our moral righteousness to our neighbor has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, so too must our religious worship as well. The operating verse of of the Sermon on the Mount is that our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
It is the new kind of righteousness, a qualitative different righteousness, a righteousness of the heart. So just as our moral righteousness must be of a different kind, it must begin with the heart, and it must manifest itself on the outside and the external, so too must our religion to God. As such, God wants our worship to be purified of all ulterior motives and all other names and all other idols because our worship, if it's going to be called true worship, must be cleansed of all other gods and idols. The first commandment that God gave to man in the Decalogue was have no other gods before me. It is the first commandment that every one of us should wake up every morning and say to ourselves, this day in the year of our Lord, January 14, 2017, have no other God before your eyes and in your heart. Every one of us has to recommit ourselves as other things and other people and other careers compete for the throne that only God can sit on. We have to get up and remind ourselves every single day, have no other gods before him. In Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord said this, I am the Lord. That is my name, Yahweh. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The issue we're concerned with this morning is the issue of almsgiving. That is giving money to those who are in need. So whether or not Pharisees were actually, when we look at our our passage this morning, blowing trumpets in the streets or in the synagogues, we're not sure about. Most scholars believe that Jesus at that point was being humorous or that he was using hyperbole to express how ostentatious they could be when they were giving their money to the poor. They were hypocritical because what they were trying to do was manifest that God is their only God and that they had no other God before them, so much so that they were going to show the whole world how much they loved him. And their idol was so subtle. It looked so much like true religion. To everybody who knew the true religion was almsgiving and prayer and fasting, when the Pharisees blew that trumpet and they gave their coin, wow, they're the real religious people. Whenever you go to, um, well, at least it used to be the case, but whenever you go to the store Cold Stone and you give ice cream and you give a little, you get your ice cream and you give a little tip in the jar, they break into a song. You feel good about it. You put your money in the bucket and they break into a song and everybody sings and everybody looks at you like, who is the one who's brought about this wonderful song that they're singing? And there you stand. You have given your tip. (laughs) Now, I do want my servers to know that I am tipping them, but for a much different reason than praise of men. It's so they won't spit in my food. (laughs) 
But what these people were doing was they desired the glory from men, not the glory to God. And think about that. Think about the change of the preposition. They desired glory from men rather than giving glory to God. The river's flowing in a different direction here. What should be going out is coming back in. So it's going, it's not not only going to the wrong person, it's going in the wrong direction. They could have given it, they should have given it out to God. Instead, they're bringing it back in to themselves. Because they desired the glory from men and not the glory to God. The sin of the Pharisees is not just that they didn't give God the glory that only He deserved, but they desired to have His glory that only belonged to Him for themselves. And this is the root of sin of both demons and men, to ascend to the throne of God and receive the glory that is only due to Him. The reward was the praise of men their own self-righteousness, and not the reward of God's own glory. When Satan tempted Adam in the garden, what did he say to him? What was the temptation? Nobody's tempted by an apple. Nobody looks at an apple and says, hmm, that's tempting. We don't know whether it was an apple. But nobody wants fruit, as Jim Gaffigan says. Nobody really wants fruit. We'd rather have cake. If it were a cake tree, then it would be a real temptation. If it were a Monte Cristo tree, it would be a real temptation. Have you ever had a Monte Cristo? It's like a turkey and ham sandwich. It's deep fried with jelly and powdered sugar. It's carny food, and it's so good. And if that were falling from the tree, maybe Adam could be like, God, this is just a delicious-looking tree. Let me have that. That's not the temptation. What was the temptation? He knows that if you eat it, be like him, knowing good from evil. That's what Satan wanted. He wanted to ascend to the throne to be in God's throne and to be in God's place and receive the glory only due to God. It's the root sin of demons and men to be God. And that's really what's causing the sin and the problems in our life now. We want to be the God of our lives. And so what turns out to be, it seems like a very a small thing of almsgiving. Really, there's a deeper root problem here, which is that we want the glory for ourselves that we should be giving out to God. That's what we want. The reward then was simply the praise of men. Sycophants. To be part of the club... They were nothing but a bunch of self-righteous religious groupies. But the Apostle Paul placed the rewards of men next to the rewards of God in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Renouncing his own self-righteousness as rubbish, that is trash, to be burnt up compared to the surpassing worth of simply knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. Listen to how he described the rewards of men versus the rewards of God. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things. What did he lose? He's not talking about losing his home, even though he lost that, or his freedom, even though he lost that. 
The passage, when he says, I've suffered the loss of all things, means the loss of any credit for his own salvation. He lost it. You come to a cross, you lose every sense of good works. And there is no more credit to be given to your account when you come to the cross. Not only do you leave your sins at the cross, but you leave your works there too. Everything is left at the cross. Everything. And Paul says to the loss, I've suffered the loss of all things in order to have God's salvation solely on his grace. He didn't get God's salvation because he was born a Jew or because he was circumcised on the eighth day or because he was a Southern Baptist, which he wasn't, or because he had the right religion or because he was perfect in his obedience or because he loved God so much that he was willing to spend his entire life defending his name by persecuting Christians. But simply this, he lost everything, all of the credit for his salvation to have simply God's grace and faith alone. So he goes on and says, I count all of my good deeds as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus says of the Pharisees who give and sound their horns when they give their gifts and they perform all of their righteous acts before men. They'll get their reward, but their reward's here. And that's it. People will be impressed by how much you give and how much you tithe and, and how, many, how many things you've given up and, and how, uh, how altruistic you can be and how ascetic you can be by denying the pleasures of life. But if what you're after really is men's approval and not God's glory... That's your reward right there. But if you want God's reward, you have to forsake all things. Why? So that you may know the power of his resurrection. That you may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That means you die to yourself and live now as Christ. When we baptize people in our baptismal pool, we demonstrate that the old person has died and that the believer has lived now, has been born again to live like Christ. Cleansed of their former way of life, raised to what? Walk in newness of life. But that newness of life is in Christ so that we don't have a righteousness of our own. The religious righteousness that surpasses then that of the scribes and Pharisees is the righteousness that acts solely on the promises of God's grace and not on the accumulation of our works. If we choose our own self-righteousness and the fleeting approval of men, if we want to be patted on the back for how much we give, rather than the glory of God, Jesus makes it very clear, you have no reward in heaven. So how should we worship God? How do we worship God? Jesus says, in secret. 
Seems almost counterintuitive, didn't we? Didn't he tell us that we were the light of the world and that we were to let our light shine among men? John Stott, quoting another preacher, says, This is not a contradiction, but it's something we all know about. It is to keep secret what we're tempted to make public and to make public what we're tempted to keep secret. Jesus isn't all of a sudden telling us, no, no, don't, don't, don't let people know that you're my, my, my follower, my disciple. He's saying when the temptation is for your own glory, don't do it. Worship God in secret. What does secret mean? It doesn't mean anonymously. Secret doesn't mean anonymously. The man who doesn't put his tithe or his tithe in an envelope with his name on it is still susceptible to the same sort of self-righteousness as the person who does put his name on the tithe envelope. I told Greer this week, I walked in and I'd been really thinking about don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And I walked in and Greer, our secretary, she was filling in for Rose. I walked in, there she was, and she had all of your tithe envelopes with all of your names on it. What a fitting thing to do is hand out tithe envelopes with your name on it. On this day when I preach, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But you're still susceptible to the same self-righteousness as the person who does. It's not the act, but the motivation that God is concerned about. Some of us may donate all sorts of money to the church or to charities or to those in need and never tell anyone a thing about it and walk away just as proud of ourselves had we blown our own trumpets in the streets. This is why Jesus warns us not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. An act, by the way, which is humanly impossible. You know when you write that check. You see the money go out of your monthly income. Most of you who own homes know that the thing that goes out, the, the second, and we sometimes we mistakenly call it a bill, but the, the biggest outgo of our monthly bill is, is our tithe. We pay the, the house note, and it's, it's in that $1,400, $1,500 range, and Ooh, that hurts. And then the next thing is our tithe. And we're really impressed with ourselves. You don't know what we give. I don't know what you give. You don't know what I give. But the danger's still there. The danger is not just that I seek the approval of men to be impressed with me, but that I am impressed with myself. So don't let your, right, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. In other words, secret means forget it. Don't be impressed with yourself. So imagine what's going on. Jesus is saying, move away from two extremes. Don't be like the ostentatious Pharisees who've got to tell everyone about their giving because they want the approval of men. But just don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Humanly impossible. The point is, don't be impressed with yourself. Giving in secret means giving to others and to God simply for the sake of obedience and His glory. No reward. None. 
You might be disappointed to know that God is not impressed with your charity. We've done a beautiful job with this church. A lot of us are giving in abundance and extra over our tithe to beautify a church building that we've been made the stewards of. And we're impressed. And we're grateful. But God's not impressed with our charity. Because the option here is either he gets all the glory and you get none or you get the glory of men and you don't get his. Either the rewards of men in this life or his rewards in the next. Charity is, after all, it is, after all, God who gave you the money to give away in the first place. We can try every which way we want to prove that we're responsible for our wealth, but without God's gift of the human intellect, willpower, and drive, we wouldn't have a single penny to throw in the offering plate. We say luck is when preparation meets hard work. A pat on the back if I've ever seen one. But God says, heaven is my throne. The earth is where I lay my feet. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest here on earth? You're going to put me in a temple? No. No, you're not going to put me in a temple. I'll let my glory be in that temple. But you can't contain me. Finitum non capax infinitum. The finite cannot contain the infinite. There is nothing God needs from you. That is the beginning of salvation, is the understanding that there's not a thing God needs from you. Not a thing He wants from you. What are you going to do? You're going to build me a house? Don't you know that the universe is where I sit? And the earth that you love so much, I place my feet on it and you would build for me a house. I made the very material you would make the house in. And you would build for me a house. All these things my hand has made, he says. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is not impressed with how much money we give away, but with our desire for his glory alone. Our reward is already the new life in Christ and the future hope of dwelling with God forever. So true religion is not found in our outward works In this week, our outward work of giving charity, but true religion, the thing that God wants above all things, is humility and contrition. Contrition is heartfelt sorrow for our sin. Humbled by simply seeing the glory of God that none of us could ever, ever have. What he's after is that we recognize that the best place of him is the highest honor we could give. That's what he's after. 
and simply are trembling at his word. So, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not seek the approval of other humans or yourself, but seek the rewards of your Father in heaven. Why do we love human glory so much and prefer it over God's glory? The main reason is because we're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Our human parents ran after their own glory first. And we are of their seed. Born, naturally created to feast on our own glory. But God has made us in Christ. The one who said to the Father, my food is to do your will. We're made in that image. And there is this tension to break away from the old man who seeks after his own glory and the old woman who seeks after her own glory and to be like Christ whose food is to simply bring glory to God. And that's why this passage is so hard for us. And every other passage. Because we still want that glory for ourselves. And Jesus says, if you're looking for your own glory, you have no reward in heaven. Why do we do this? Paul says in Philippians 4.19 this, to reassure every believer of this truth today. God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So many times we worship God in order to be praised by men. We practice our righteousness before others to win their approval. It's one thing when people like our Facebook pics. And we want their approval on Facebook. Did you, did you find this picture I painted beautiful? Or did you find my makeup pretty? And people click like, like, like. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. It's a little vain. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's an entirely different thing to practice our worship to God in order to be praised by others. And that is something that pervades the American church. Why are you here today? Are you trying to impress your left hand this morning? Well, I did my weekly duty. I went to church. Are you impressed with yourself? Is that what you're here for? To check off a, a, a box that needs to be checked? And maybe you're not here for yourself. Maybe you're here because... You want to be part of your, your crew or be part of your family and you want to impress your mother by going to church because you made a vow to mother that you'd go to church. You want to praise because you know that if you're not here, you, you might be looked at as less than a believer and so you're here, you, you've come for all the wrong reasons. I mean, why do we really come? Why do we really serve why do we give our tithe? Why do we preach and teach really? 
Why do we dress nice to church and bring our Bibles? Who are we trying to impress? Say, are you saying we shouldn't do those things? Not at all. I am saying as mature believers who are looking to make sure that their heart conforms to the heart that God has given them, look at why you are worshiping Him. Is it for His glory and only that? Or is it for your own impressive, in in order to be impressed by yourself or to impress others? Is it for your own glory or for others' glory or is it for God's glory? There is a nasty trend in the church world today of people of consumer-driven church going. So we go to the church that has the best seats and they have the, they have the nicest stage and they've got, oh, have you been to that church? Yeah, they've got big screens over here and they've got big screens over here. And if I had the money, I'd put big screens up there. I want one there and I want one there. And the music is awesome, man. They're professionals and they've got an entire orchestra and they can play the violin and they got some guy who plays a French horn. I mean, who in the world plays a French horn? But wow, it sounds great on Sunday. And when you go, they always got these fancy screens and oh my gosh, the coffee. It's Starbucks coffee in the vestibule. And oh, I just love that church and I'm waiting to hear, what do they believe? I don't, I'm not saying get rid of your Starbucks in your lobby. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's wrong to have these nice things. I'm saying, why are you going? What's the competition? You want to tell your friends you go to that church because that church does it. They do it right. They're impressive. They're in a better neighborhood. Our friends will think highly of us. But if we really examine why or the reasons behind our worship to God, we might find that we're not after God after all, but rather after the praise of men. I want to challenge you this morning to begin to worship God simply because He is worthy to be praised. Churches all over the world today, made up of a handful of people, go in without an organ, without pews, without beautiful lights, and they simply worship with one another to God. And they don't get to say silly things like, They have better music over at that house church. They're just glad to be there because God himself is worthy to be praised. Someone said this week, what do the people think about the chairs? I said, I don't know. But it's only something really Americans worry about. It really is. Chairs or pews, carpet or tile. Why are you here this morning? I hope you don't come for the chairs. I hope these chairs bother you a little bit. I hope that you come because you want to feed on the glory of God. First Thessalonians 5, 16, 18 says this. Rejoice always. 
Always. That means when the air conditioning goes off in a couple weeks, rejoice always. Just fan yourself. Pray without ceasing. Every moment of every day, Lord, was, was that thought to you? I don't mean to become legalistic. I mean to really consider what your life is about. Whether or not you want God's glory or man's glory. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give to God in secret. And simply receive the reward of his fellowship. Let's pray. What a reward it is, Lord God, to be made new in the image of Christ. Lord, it is our goal to present every man and woman and child mature in Christ. As Paul said to Titus, he is a servant, your servant for man's growth and for man's good. Lord, take Northwest on a wonderful journey. Every individual in this church, take us on a wonderful journey away from ourselves and men and just bask in your glory and worship and praise you because you are worthy to be praised. Your name is holy. Thank you, God, for all that you've given to us, that you would allow us the cross of Christ to be our salvation. And Lord, let us seek after the rewards in heaven. Thank you that your dwelling place is with us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?